Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The Ends Report. In this episode, we'll examine why the Green Watchdog has sunk its teeth into the government's environmental track record. We'll find out how ministers are getting on with their plans to ignite a bonfire of retained EU laws. And we'll go back to deepest, darkest Dorset, where a rewilding project has faced an unexpected hiccup. Then, in this episode's deep dive, we'll take a forensic look at what critics are describing as DEFRA's culture of delay. And after that, Simon and Alice will be along to talk about a landmark European ruling on pesticides. So, without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. I'm Jamie Carpenter, and I'm here with Pippa Neal and Tess Colley. Our first story of this episode's Big Green News section relates to a pretty damning assessment of the government's green track record from the Office for Environmental Protection, which is the post-Brexit green watchdog for England and Northern Ireland. A report published last week by the watchdog looked in detail at the government's progress on the delivery of the 25-year environment plan, which was launched five very long years ago by the former Prime Minister Theresa May. And unfortunately, it seems that the watchdog's assessment is that the lofty ideals contained in that plan haven't actually been delivered on. According to the LEP, there's little good news to report. That's their quote, not mine. And also this killer quote, also their quote, not mine. We assessed 23 environmental targets and found none where the government's progress was demonstrably on track. So pretty uncomfortable reading all around them for the DEFRA team. Tess, uh, you went to a briefing with the OEP on the report, and, and overall it, it looks like it paints a pretty bleak picture. Um, but, but is there anything particular that the OEP is particularly concerned about? Did, did, did you pick up on? Yeah, I mean, they, they have not held back, as you've just suggested. In particular, I'd say the report raises particular concern about this chronic decline in, in, in the country's priority species and, and lack of new data around those populations. And I suppose that in and of itself probably isn't surprising to us or our listeners. We often discuss how the UK is one of the most nature depleted countries in the world, as we all know. Uh, but the new thing the report says is that is that the, the big target to halt the decline of species um, by 2030 is already off track. And that's only been on the book since 2021 when the Environment Act uh, was passed. And, you know, to great, to great, you know, it was fantastic that that was on the face of the bill. Um, but they, what the OEP said is that achieving this target will require very substantial change in the pace and magnitude of intervention um, because of the fact that we've seen such sharp declines uh, in the in the five years before the 25-year environment plan was even started. And we haven't got any new data uh, on that. So they weren't able to assess kind of recent, recent trends. Um, it also highlights what it describes as alarmingly low evidence evaluations in waste and chemicals policy, finding only one, for example, only one evaluation focusing on the efficacy of policies under the minimizing waste goal. Um, and, you know, considering the timeframes, the, the watchdog says this is, an, you know, these are alarmingly low numbers, uh, especially compared to other goal areas such as thriving plants and wildlife which has 35 relevant publications, they say. Well, I guess that's what happens when you, when you set yourself world-leading targets or it's, um, <laughs> you, have to, you have to be world-leading, don't you? Yeah, it's part um, of it. So, so what, 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 does, um, what, what does the watchdog suggest that the government should do in order to, to get its house in order? Um, well, it, it repeatedly comes back to this forthcoming environmental improvement plan, which the government is due to publish and seems like it actually plans to publish uh, by the end of this month. And it makes... You know, the OEP make a series of suggestions for what should be in this plan, saying that, you know, unlike the 25 year environment plan, which lacked a unifying delivery plan, um, you know, with, with the new long term targets that have just been set, a, an effective 
EIP would set and pursue clear and achievable interim targets that are as ambitious as possible in the areas needing most attention. Sounds about right. Um, and they also say they want the new EIP to make clear use of robust and current data and analyses that are well aligned with all targets. And this is like I just mentioned before, really, this is something they keep coming back to. It's just this lack of appropriate data that they can they can assess loads of the goals that they wanted to. Um, and according to report, a number of these areas without recent data are also the ones where we're seeing adverse trends. Um, and the areas that this is particularly true of are um, abundance of priority species, raw material consumed, residual waste, uh, and as you know, water based ones, like achievement of good marine of good environmental status and state of the water environment. So really big areas, they need they need proper data. Thanks, Tess. And and and, and um Pippa, what, what's the government um said in response to the OEP's report? Yeah, so they haven't said much, but a DEFRA spokesperson did say, as Tess mentioned, that the environment improvement plan um will set comprehensive action that this government will take to reverse the decline of nature, achieve net zero goals and deliver cleaner air and water. So I guess there's quite a lot of pressure and a lot riding on this, which hopefully we'll see by the end of the month. Um, And they also said that since the publication of the 25 year environment plan, the department has funded new nature recovery projects, increased its tree planting rates and started work on the restoration of peatlands. So yeah, that's that's their response. Pretty minimal at the moment. Yeah, definitely, definitely one to watch out for. And uh, yeah, it sounds like that that kind of statement is uh, strangely familiar from from Defra. But um, I, I do wonder sometimes whether they have any regrets about uh, setting up a highly effective environmental oversight body. It's the, <laughs> one <of> the, <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Next up, we're going to talk about the highly controversial retained EU law bill, which we've talked about a few times, I think, uh, previously on the podcast. Um, so this was back in Parliament last week. And um, just to recap, if you've been if you've been living in a cave for the last few months, this, this bill is a really, really key part of the government's Brexit plans. And it contains provisions that would scrap thousands of EU era laws at the end of the year. The bill seeks to introduce a sunset clause of December 2023, by which date all EU derived legislation and retained direct EU legislation will expire, although there is a possibility of extensions if required, but to no later than December 2026. And green groups are really, really concerned about the bill, which some NGOs have called the bulldozer bill. And and to underline this, last week a report by the Wildlife and Countryside Link warned that the weakening of environmental regulations under the bill could deliver an economic cost of £80 over 30 years. Um, Pippa, you, you tuned into the Commons debate last week, and, and it, it looked to me like the environmental implications of the bill did come up, and that there were some attempts to amend the bill to give environmental regulations some protections from its provisions. How, how did how exactly did MPs try to amend the bill, and, and, and what happened after that? Yeah, so, well, it made for some pretty dramatic and depressing um, watching on a Wednesday afternoon, I think it was. Um, but there was quite a few amendments tabled, and there's three that are particularly interesting from an environmental perspective. Um, so firstly, an amendment was tabled by Justin Madders, who's the Shadow Minister for Employment Rights, which set out to update Clause 5 to create additional conditions before the power set out in Clause 15 of the bill can be exercised in relation to environmental law. Um, and Clause 15 basically prevents redrafting um, by precluding and that it can't increase the regulatory burden. So for green groups that are particularly concerned with this idea that the retained EU law bill is going to see intense deregulation, this is particularly concerning. 
Um, and when discussing this proposed amendment, Nusrat Ghani, a minister at Bayes, said that there had been a lot of misinformation about the environment and reiterated that DEFRA has committed to maintain or enhance these standards. Um, but this wasn't kind of enough to reassure MPs with Caroline Lucas saying that this rhetoric is completely undermined by Clause 15 and said it's clear it's in black and white. The bill is an absolute ideological attack on safety and standards. So <laughs> it was pretty pretty dramatic, as I say. Um, and then there was a second proposal under Amendment 36, which was to try and encourage the government to put down and establish exactly what laws are in scope of the bill before the powers are exercised. Um, and I think, you know, this doesn't seem like much of an ask, really. Um, but it comes after it was reported last year that a further 1,400 pieces of, in quotations, long forgotten legislation had been discovered. Um, and the minister chairing the debate said that, you know, the e EU law has been identified on the retained EU law dashboard and that officials are working to update it. But during the debate, MPs warned that the dashboard hadn't been updated since the bill was first presented. You know, it doesn't seem like much of an Amazing. ask. But, um, and then there was just one final change, which was to Amendment 21, which set out to exclude certain regulations from the sunset clause. Um, and this included the REACH regulations, conservation of habitats and species regulations and the Water Framework Directive. Okay, thanks, Pippa. And I, I mean, I think um, you, you mentioned the, the retained EU law dashboard, which which I think was launched by Jacob Rees-Mogg a while back to, to great fanfare. And, and it, it seems from what MPs are saying, it's a complete dog's, dog's breakfast, isn't it? <laughs> so you, you've got like... Um, You've got loads of laws missing. It hasn't been hasn't been updated since the bill was presented, and um, it kind of seems like we're in this position now where you've got sunset clause of end of end of this year, and we still don't know where what the sun is going to set on, which seems like a fairly extraordinary position mm. to be in. But then maybe we shouldn't be surprised about these things anymore. <laughs> Tess, just just to um, in terms of what this means for for Defra, I think I've seen a couple of your stories that they they the ministers there have been talking about. Uh, a retain by default approach to how they're how they're dealing with this. Do, what, what, what does that mean exactly? Does it mean anything at all? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> um, well, as you say, so Therese Coffey, the Environment Secretary, said last year in a, a common select committee that to manage resourcing, she she's told her officials to take an approach that, and I'm quoting now, by default will retain stuff, but we'll have it in this new status. That new status just being, you know, no longer having EU in front of in front of it. Um, and she added, "There's quite a lot of stuff that's not relevant anymore." Saying in particular that the EA has told her that there's quite a lot in the Water Framework Directive they'd like to change. Okay, I mean, some people may take some reassurance by this idea that you know they're going to kind of take this copy and you know, Lord Benyon told me at an event at some time last year that uh, a lot of the, the rural exercise will be a case of copy and paste. Um, however, I think what would be good to remember here is all the other things the government has said and done. We had the that Nature Recovery Green Paper last year, which you know centred on review of the habitats regulations, and you know, it was all about this desire to simplify protections and streamline the environmental assessment process. And this is a government desperate to you know get things moving in the house building sector, stop nutrient neutrality regulations, which is all underlined by EU case law, stop that holding up the leveling up agenda and and you know house building. So whilst they talk about wanting to retain stuff by default, and that might, you know, mean that a lot of things aren't just lost at the end of the year, um, I, I, I think it's it's quite possible that even if they just pick a few minority areas to to reform or 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 just drop entirely, uh, even though we might not, you know, 
lose all protections, which is the idea we're being faced with at the moment, we may actually end up seeing still quite a significant environmental impact nonetheless, if, you know, depending on which select regulations are, are tossed to the bonfire. Excellent. <laughs> um, and I think as we'll talk about a bit later, the, the, there's there's kind of quite huge implications for DEFRA's workload and that sort of stuff yes. too, which um, good fun. Moving on to something that's slightly more more uh, parochial, I guess. Um, for our final story of this episode's Big Green News section, we're, we're going to return to Dorset, which is becoming something of a hotspot for rewilding-related news. And this story relates to two Eurasian beavers, Woody and Twiggy, which is a great name for beavers, who were introduced to the Mapperton Estate in West Dorset last year under license from Natural England. Um, and our, as our regular listeners will know, we, we like talking beaver fever on the eco chamber. So, um, Tess, what, what have Woody and Twiggy been up to? I mean, who's to say, Jamie? They're they're on the run, uh, fugitives from the Natural England Beaver Licensing Regime. Um, so last week, the Mapperton Estate in Dorset posted on uh, Facebook announcing that, that Woody and Twiggy appear to have made a play for freedom um, after a storm took out some of some of the fencing on their enclosures. And the estate described them in this post as currently enjoying an extended excursion along the banks of the Mangerton River. Sounds lovely. The estate staff. Uh, apparently, with the, with the help of Dorset Wildlife Trust, are uh, working to to find and trap the pair so they can be returned. Amazing! So, kind of a, a rewilding project that's really gone very wild. Um, <laughs> Pippa, have you heard of the updates about their their whereabouts? Yeah, so I actually saw this morning that Mapton Estate has posted on its Facebook page ah. that they've been located and returned home. Um, they said they're they're living in a holding pen until repairs have been made to their enclosure, and they set out to thank the community members who helped identify them. Oh, wow. So, good or bad news, depending on who you are. But <laughs> yeah, all good things must come to an end. Yeah. You're a beaver. Yeah. yeah, I guess it's a rare rare piece of good news for the Eco Chamber podcast. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> Hopefully their holding pen has got some reinforcements, otherwise it might escape again. <laughs> mm. So on, on that note, I think that brings us to the end of our, our Big Green News section. And um, so thanks to Pippa and Tess and I are going to stay on the podcast and talk about DEFRA's culture of delay. So now this is our deep dive section and Tess and I are going to talk about DEFRA's green policy backlog. The phrase culture of delay comes from a letter sent to the Environment Secretary to raise coffee by the Environmental Audit Committee Chair Philip Dunn in November. And in the letter, he used the phrase culture of delay specifically and pointed out that DEFRA was lagging seriously behind in meeting deadlines it had set itself in multiple areas. Um, and, and, and sort of going back to that time, the, the, the warning came in particular after DEFRA had missed a legal deadline set by the Environment Act for the department to publish a series of long-term targets. When those targets are missed, Labour's shadow environment secretary described the missed deadline as a monumental dereliction of duty. Um, and that failure prompted a warning from the Office for Environmental Protection that it was keeping decisions on the, on the use of its formal enforcement powers under active review following a series of missed deadlines. And we also had, um, at the end of last year, the extraordinary spectacle of Therese Coffey telling MPs before Christmas that she does not intend to continue breaking the law, which to me seems like quite a pretty low bar for an environment secretary to set herself. So, so Tess, on, on, on this um, policy backlog from, from DEFRA or, or the culture of delay, how, quite how bad do you think it is? And, and are there any signs now that it's easing? Uh, well, it certainly got so bad that you know any improvement would would be an improvement. By the end of last year, ENDS had totted up that there were at least seventeen uh, delay policies in the pipeline. This included some really big ones. You know, we're the the awaited details on biodiversity net gain, which is due to become a mandatory requirement this November. Um, the environmental principles policy statement, which is meant to apply environmental principles across government. 
policy making, still don't have it. Uh, the nature recovery green paper response, which I just mentioned in the big green news section, underlying all these potential big changes uh, to the habitats regulations um, and other stuff, you know, post EU reach regulatory regime for chemicals, waiting for that and National Action Plan for Pesticides, all really big things. That's just a few of them. But we have started to see a few things coming coming out of the Whitehall gates. Last week, we saw some further details on the long-awaited deposit return scheme. And start of this year, we saw some details come through on the environmental land management schemes. Um, and, and of course, at the end of last year, we at the very end of last year, we got those very delayed environmental targets um, so it seems like things are starting to get through, um, but the, the, yeah, there's there's a lot there's a lot to catch up on. Yeah, definitely. Those are kind of interesting that there have been a few announcements. So you mentioned the deposit return scheme and, and the targets, but it does it does seem that that a lot of people seem to be distinctly underwhelmed by what's been been announced. So so I guess we, we've got to be careful what we wish for. The, uh, <laughs> maybe it's better to kind of live in live in suspense rather than be disappointed by what actually. <laughs> emerges from the department what a choice yeah yeah exactly yeah i mean i suppose moving on now to what 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 actually lies behind the culture of delay there, there was a another, another fun appearance from therese coffee um a select committee before christmas where she she attributed it to, to a uh, a search for perfection um so not quite sure about there. that we've all been there i mean it sounds like something that my, my my kids would say if they they'd forgotten to hand their homework in on time so um Maybe not 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 dwell on that one too much, but we could look at some of the other potential causes. Um, I think one one of them that, that people cite is this, this kind of ministerial revolving door at Defra, and there's been there's certainly been a lot of change at Defra over the last few years. There's been three environment secretaries in 2022 alone, and um, obviously a whole load of political chaos, and also this kind of sense that since Michael Gove, that was seen as a bit of a, a golden era in terms of Defra's. <laughs> if that's possible to think of it in that way um but but there seems to be a sense they never quite matched up to his caliber um do, i mean do, do you think there's this kind of issue with a lack of vision at deference sorry that's kind of a bit of a what they might call in in a football or hospital pass kind of <laughs> yeah thank you um <laughs> I think there's certainly a bit of a wobble going on in DEFRA over its its vision on, on certain policies. Um, Elms is the one that comes to mind, those environmental land management schemes. And that was, and this is a big Michael Gove thing, lauded as the cornerstone of green Brexit uh, by Gove when he was DEFRA sec. And this idea underpinning it that, that farmers should be paid public money for public goods that's new, and I, you know, I dare say it actually, you know, that shows some vision of a new way to do land management. That now I can't think of any examples of that going on elsewhere uh, in other countries. But the, these continuous delays we've seen, and and what you know, many green groups uh, see as a watering down of that core vision of public money for public goods, does suggest there as a bit of a, a vision leak. In the department, uh, Vicky heard from the Food and Agriculture Organization Sustain. She recently told ENS that this is the overarching problem with Elm. She said, and because the money on offer doesn't match the need, there's all this wrangling going on behind closed doors. But where do you, you know, where do you put that money? Um, and you need that vision to really underpin those decisions. And I would add that. That's, you know, it's part of the, the vision discussion, I suppose, but the political weight of the politicians given the DEFRA remit does play a part here. I mean, maybe, maybe the reason Michael Gove is this golden era that people like to look back on, uh, he was a, he's a really big name and maybe he wielded more influence than I dare say some of uh, the subsequent environment secretaries we've seen. When he went to the treasury, maybe when he put forward his ideas and said, I need this money, whatever, um, maybe that was taken a bit more seriously than um, than some others because uh, I think 
yeah, that's that public money for public goods could could really change things uh, in terms of, of land management. So let's hope they're definitely keep it in mind. Mm, yeah, I think I think that's a really good point about the 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 kind of stature of the environment secretaries. And I think when when you look at reshuffles, you can definitely tell a lot about the priority that uh, that the prime minister is giving to the department or environmental issues by who they put into mm. DEFRA without naming any any names <laughs> at all. Um, I mean, just just on on the on on elms and 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 that side of things. Mm. I mean, there's there's been this kind of issue since the. Um, start of Russia's war with Ukraine around an increasing focus on food security. And I, I guess you've got that combined with a, there are some, there are some parts of the Tory party that are very suspicious about the the more rewilding element of, of Elms and, 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 and that there being this kind of tug of war over the policy as a, as a result. I mean, do you think that's a kind of fair fair assessment? Yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely, certainly in the last year with all the political tumult, Elms became something that people could take a stand on. I think they felt it was maybe a, a safer area to say, yes, we're for food security. I mean, we've got to, you know, we've got to be serious now in our policies. Now there's a war in Russia because, you know, environmental policies are maybe seen, still seen in some quarters as a bit of a fluffy thing. Nice to have, but, you know, really let's let's grow loads of food. When really, of course, I think most people who work in this this area know that the answers are much more nuanced and and um, making farming and nature work together are going to be vital to solving any of the problems we face. Elms, is, we're still waiting for quite a few details on Elms. Uh, the review that the, that Liz Trust launched of of the schemes is finished, uh, but Defra told me they're not. You know, the department's not going to do a formal report on on the outcome of that review. But what Therese Coffey has has said is this uh, three pillar structure is going to be retained, um, but the middle tier, which was known as the local nature recovery is set to be replaced by what she called an enhanced version of the countryside stewardship scheme, which is already a part of thousands of farm businesses. Um, we still don't really know what, what this enhanced bit is going to look like. And therefore, it also said at the start of the year that they're introducing a new management payment for farmers taking part in the lowest tier of Elms, which is the sustainable farming uh, incentive. This will see farmers paid 20 quid for the first 50 hectares of land under this agreement. Some green groups are you know, saying this is using different words, but this has taken us back a bit to farmers being paid public money with no direct environmental outcome attached to it. It's just, here's here's some money. Uh, but it is, is is linked to the sustainable farming incentive still. So there's that. But So we're in less limbo than last year, but there's there's a lot of uncertainty still around. Yeah, a lot of yeah. It sounds like there's still still a lot to work out, and I think another another area there's a, still a lot to work out on as well is is the retained EU law mm. stuff, which we talked about a bit earlier in the big news section, and, and we talked earlier about how how that kind of led to a bit of a kerfuffle in the Commons and amendments being tried to get through and and, and didn't. But but another implication is it has generated an absolutely huge workload for Defra, which I think as the department has more pieces of retained EU law than any other other Whitehall department to deal with. Quite quite how much of a distraction do you think that is for? For deference to, to to have to handle, it's it's massive. I think. I mean, and you're gonna we're gonna see green groups throwing all their attention and resource at this fighting this bill. I think in the next few months, just be, because of the impact it's going to have on Defra's policy making. I mean, according. I mean, we've already talked about the government's uh, dashboard not really being up to date or anything, but that says alone there's 570 pieces of legislation that's really at the very least coming under Defra's remit. Uh, there's possibly more out there that we don't even know about. Um, and this is from, you know, from from what I've heard politicians saying in Parliament. There's currently three people 
assigned within DEFRA to working through all this. So that's that's what, that's what I mean. I, yeah, that's what that's what I heard an MP say. Um, so it's not not ideal. Craig Bennett, he's chief executive of the Wildlife Trust. He told ENDS last week that. Um, you know, very he, in his view, very few people within the environmental community, let alone wider circles, have got their heads just around how distracting uh, it will be. But he adds that this is this was an issue that, in a way, was already there um, in that in this tendency to be distracted. I say he, he Craig Bennett talked about how George Eustace, in his words, I'm quoting, was bizarrely focused on reforming arms length bodies such as Natural England and the Forestry Commission. Um, goodness knows how much time they spent thinking about this when they didn't have to, uh, is what he said. And now we've got this huge, big, chunky piece of work. And like I've already outlined all of these policies, which we're still waiting to hear from it. They, you know, this is, there are limited resources. Um, so it's, it's, it, it's going to be a problem, I think. Definitely. Yeah. And I guess if you're, if you're searching for perfection as well and trying to do all that stuff, then it's going to take even longer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, th- thank you, Tess. That, that's uh, that's really interesting. Um, and, and I guess to summarise, it, it doesn't sound like there's any any uh, one root cause of the culture of delay. It's it's much more complicated mm. than that. So we've got yeah. a, kind of a t- toxic mix of political chaos, ministerial turnover, global events, and just too much to do as well. Mm. So uh, yeah, we'll see what uh, see what the, the, the this year brings, and uh, whether there's there's any culture change, or whether whether Therese Coffee can get through the year without breaking the law again, would be a good start, I guess. So we've we've got we've got plenty of um, we've got plenty of further reading material on this, that, including an in depth feature that's been written by one of our regular contributors, James Fair, and listeners can can read it in full on our website, endreport.com. So please take a look if you're interested in in this whole area. Now it's time for our knowing me, knowing EU section. Simon Pixton and Alice Fillon are here to bring you the latest on green policy from Brussels. In this episode, they are going to talk about a recent European Court of Justice ruling on emergency pesticide authorisations. Over to you, Alice and Simon. Thanks, Jamie. Um, And so, Simon, you suggested last time that... uh, chemicals regulation was going to be the hot topic in 2023. So I'm going to say that you called it because today we are talking about what I like to call the bees versus sugar beets case. Give us the lower down, Simon. Thanks, Alice. Yeah. So I thought this week we could talk about a recent European Court of Justice case came out last week and relates to the use of banned or heavily restricted neonicotinoid pesticides for outdoor use. And basically the, the, the case revolved around, specifically around the Belgian government's decision to grant emergency authorization to use two neonicotinoids um, in the coating, so that's pre-treatment of seeds of, of um, sugar beet, which is particularly vulnerable to pests and which farmers have across the EU uh, applied to governments to be able to use in emergency situations to deal with like widespread outbreaks of disease. In the particular case that ECJ was ruling on, you had uh, two green groups. So you had Pesticide Action Europe, so that's Pan Europe, and Nature Progrès Belgium, along with they teamed up with a uh, individual Belgian beekeeper who basically was like, oh, my, my bees are being decimated by the use of these neonicotinoids. For a bit of context, neonicotinoids Pesticides were banned specifically because of their impact on pollinator populations. They found to really um, harm bees and butterflies and other pollinating insects. Okay, so am I right in thinking that the seed coating technique in particular was um, a main point in the case? Yeah, so the the, the ruling specifically concerned the treatment of um, pre-treatment of seeds 
um, because that was that was the case in the Belgian case, but it's an extremely widespread practice um, when it comes to neonics noise. But with pesticides in general, uh, mm. is a really really common technique because you it's more precise than having to spray your fields with pesticides once they're really growing. But then effectively, it can conflict with the need to specifically use those pesticides to ward against a specific danger, which like the um, the text of the allowing a derogation specifies that the derogation must be in response to a particular danger. And so if you've coated those seeds, which are then sold to farmers, you the one of the arguments was that you can't actually say for sure that the pest is present. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I mean, in some ways, it, it makes a lot of intuitive sense, right? And this is something which also the advocate, uh, an advocate general to the European Court of Justice, Juliana uh, Kolkot, she, she gave an, a legal opinion about this case um, last year, where she came to a very similar conclusion. She was like, it can't be emergency use if you're using it all the time. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that's sort of what the, the judges were getting at in this case as well. If you're, if you're preemptively treating crops with a, a banned pesticide, it's, the, the, the emergency is hard to justify. And so they specifically ban, or they specifically say that actually using pre-treated seeds in the case of the neonicotinoid ban um, goes against the, the spirit of the ban. Yeah. Um, and I, I think the, the pan-Europe who I chatted to after the case were a little disappointed with the ruling because basically the Belgian court that they had issued, that they lodged the, lodged the complaint against had written to the, European Court of Justice with a series of legal questions about the use of yeah. derogations um, for for pesticide restrictions, and the the ECJ had only really addressed the first one because of the way that it works. Because they had enough arguments by answering the first couple questions, they didn't address the further questions, which were also obviously interesting for the people who had lodged the complaint. Yeah, which means that in a sense the resulting law is perhaps more narrow than green groups would have hoped. Yeah. I mean, I mean, one of the things that Pan Europe did say to me that they were pleased about with the ruling was this emphasis on exceptional use and exceptional yeah. Yeah. authorizations to use restricted pesticides and the fact that it really emphasizes that you need to have exhausted all other possibilities so preventative measures before you before you can approve the use of of restricted pesticides is a good thing in their view yeah so the the judgment reaffirms that derogations must be interpreted strictly and they quote a precedent case um agrimotion and then they also suggest that Derogations are to be used to temporarily allow the placing on the market of plant protection products containing substances that are not covered by an approval regulation, essentially not to circumvent rules that are already in place to prohibit their placing on the market. So because in this case, there are already specific rules stating the very narrow circumstances in which those substances can be used, Essentially, the court said that you can't then go around it and use the derogation to authorize the use of it beyond that. Beyond the very limited terms that yeah. it sets out, yeah. So what do you think 
the implications of this case are going to be, Simon? So, I mean, basically, this was a provisional ruling that, that, that it was the Belgian court asking the ECJ for clarification of EU law. So this case now passes back down to the Belgian court for its final ruling on this specific case. But the precedent that the ECJ case sets is a really important one, and it will have quite dramatic implications for how member states are able to use derogations from this particular ban on neonicotinoids. But the precedent it sets at the EU level is very wide ranging and, and will make it much more difficult for member states to issue derogations for the use of neonicotinoid pesticides in the future. The other thing that it could do is force the European Commission to revise a guidance document that it published in 2020 on the use of derogations because the judgment basically completely undermines the, the Commission's existing guidance to member states on how they go about issuing derogations. With the new legal clarification, that now seems trickier to justify. Mm, okay. Back to you, Jamie. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Eco Chamber. Thank you to Pippa Neal, Tess Colley, Simon Pixton and Alice Fillon. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please head over to endsreport.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next time. <laughs>